Today, everyone, on the 10% Podcast, I have John Hayes from Vitalized Venture Capital. John, thank you for getting on. Jason, thanks so much for having me on today. I'm really excited for our show. Let's get down to it. John, just tell us a little bit about your upbringing, your background story, and then we'll go on from there. Sure. So born and raised in the Chicagoland area with a seven-year detour in Southern California, which admittedly probably softened up my blood a little bit, made me uh, maybe a little soft for winter, but we're coming into spring now. So I'm looking forward to the sunshine, but I uh, grew up in a pretty entrepreneurial family overall, had a few aunts and uncles who had run their own smaller family businesses. So kind of grew up in that environment and saw both the challenges and the rewards that running your own business brought into your life. And from a very early age, I knew that I wanted entrepreneurship to be part of my journey in some way. I just knew that this roller coaster looked like a lot of fun. I had no idea what that meant at the time, but was soon going to find out. So I started my career in finance, actually. I started in restructuring uh, as a consultant, and we were working with large Chapter 11 bankruptcies, uh, out-of-court restructurings with everything from retail to commodities to energy, et cetera. And I started in that space because I knew that at some point I wanted to build my own company and or get into investing. But there was so much that I didn't know that I needed a starting point to be able to understand where businesses went wrong so I could avoid those pitfalls in the future. And so that really provided me with an incredible opportunity to get to know some incredible, not only consultants, but work with C-suite executives as a 23, 24-year-old kid and just get to be a sponge and, and really learn as much as I could. I knew that I was really starting to get that itch to go be an operator. I had an idea based on sort of my background growing up with with smaller family businesses to use software and AI to help these smaller companies automate and optimize their marketing campaigns because the agency model doesn't always work very well for SMBs. And so I figured really there had to be a way to use software to make some of this stuff more sustainable built a company called Market Trust, went through the Founder Institute Accelerator Program, which was really my first opportunity to dive into the world of startups. And really, I still don't think I know what that meant at that time, but had some great mentors and had some great opportunities to work with some terrific operators and really just understand the the true roller coaster that being a startup founder uh, really is. After that point, did that for a couple of years, uh, shifted over to the investment side where uh, my mentor, Gail Wilkinson, the general partner at Vitalize Ventures, gave me an opportunity to join the team. And I've been there pretty much ever since, uh, working with uh, kind of a, a few other firms and some learning opportunities along the way. So it's been an incredible journey. I'm really excited about the future of venture and startups here in Chicago and just could not be more thrilled to be a part of it. That's so. Interesting upbringing. Let's look back at the time when you were at Bank of America on the restructuring desk. What were common issues that you found most companies went through that led them to be distressed or even file Chapter 11? 
Like, what are some lessons you learned from them? Sure. So when in between my junior and senior year of college, I interned with Bank of America's Global Transaction Services Group, which really provided me with my first exposure to what it meant to focus on solid business fundamentals. So what I was doing in that capacity was working with uh, the more experienced analysts to develop these trade programs for international uh, retailers that were sourcing from suppliers all over the country. So uh, take a big box retailer, for example, they're sourcing different goods and products from smaller companies really all over the world. We would help put together these uh, programs that would allow smaller companies to finance their um, trade receivables, uh, et cetera, to be able to you know, compete more effectively, provide the quantity of inventory they needed to these larger retailers uh, at a, a price point at a financing um, rate that would allow them to basically have more leverage than they would otherwise be able to. What I learned out of that experience is more than anything, cash really is king. And that seems to be the overall sort of guiding light or guiding theme to my career. And really just getting familiar, getting to love the sort of unsexy formula of cash conversion cycles and trade financing and understanding how businesses are able to run their day-to-day operations using tangible cash. Because at the end of the day, your business cannot succeed unless you make more money than you spend and unless you have money on hand to finance the expenses that allow you to, to not only grow, but to survive. And so that solid understanding of just liquidity management that came from my experience with B of A certainly translated into my experience with FTI, where I was in the restructuring group, where we were brought in to situations where often there wasn't only just a, a solvency issue, but ultimately a day-to-day liquidity issue uh, in hand. And so that was the number one thing I took away, not only from my time with Bank of America, but also with FTI is just this emphasis on the incredible importance of liquidity. And it's obviously something that in a incredibly bullish market over the last four or five years, a lot of people lost sight of in light of incredible increases in valuations, a focus on growth, a focus on momentum investing, et cetera. Because when everything's going up and to the right, you don't always have to focus on the actual liquidity performance of the business when financing is readily available. And so I think it's just this focus on business fundamentals, this focus on cash that has allowed me to take a different perspective, very likely a more conservative perspective to venture investing because it's always in the back of my mind. And I think it's really been driven by both those experiences from B of A and from FTI as well. That's a very interesting take, and especially in light of what's going on with the markets today and the credit crunch that's going on and liquidity is drying up in many companies, um, both private and public. That makes me want to ask now, moving over to the startup scene, how do new startup founders tell their story in a tight market and drum up interest to potential investors and advisors? Absolutely. It's a great question. And I'm not sure there's always 
a science to it. A lot of times there's more of an art to it. And so I can give you my perspective on what that combination of art and science looks like. And I'm sure there are a lot of different and varying opinions out there. But for me, it always starts with alignment. It's sort of becoming a, a buzzword these days, but it's a word that I really like because there has to be alignment in every part of your story. Why do you as a founder or as a team of co-founders care about this problem? What is it about your backgrounds or your experiences or your passions that make you the right fit to solve this problem? And quite frankly, what do we as investors have to believe in to understand that you are the right team to ultimately take the company to where your vision for it lies. And so there just has to be alignment throughout all of this. Admittedly, it is a tougher market to raise in now than it was 12, 18, 24 months ago. No one's denying that by any means. With that being said, the companies that have that alignment, that have the right story, that have intentionality with the raise and a clear focus on what they're raising for, aka really good companies, are still able to raise money. Now, the valuation game has changed, but that doesn't mean that the availability of cash for really good companies uh, has totally dried up. There is some chilling going on in the market with everything related to the regional banking crises, et cetera, but that doesn't mean that good companies can't get investment. So I just want to set that context for everyone because what you sort of hear in the echo chamber of Twitter and, and LinkedIn is that there's no investing activity going on at all. I simply don't think that's true. Acknowledging that there are macroeconomic factors that are slowing activity down more than it was over the last 12 to 24 months. So I just wanted to set that context. But it really is all about alignment and intentionality with your story and being very specific about what each dollar is going towards and how it's translating into very tangible growth for your business in a way that is controlled, focused. And while it ultimately may not be totally right how you spend that money, because at the end of the day, startups are experiments, at least there is a substantive reason for why you're doing what you're doing. And that's sort of the ultimate thread that allows founders who are successful at raising to have that success. How do founders build real relationships with investors before going to market? I know you did talk about alignment, but how would we go about that? If you think about really achieving success in, in anything in your life, it requires a lot of repetitions. That includes talking to as many people as you can to tell your story. And part of that is, let's say you're, you know, your, your goal is to get to the NBA. You're going to start practicing and playing against players of, of lower competition first. You're going to do summer camps. You're going to do summer leagues. You'll play in lower stakes environments to hone your skills, to practice, et cetera, before the championship game, before the big moment, before you're looking to play in high school, college, or the NBA. And it's very similar for founders who are looking to raise money. You have to practice and tell your story and iterate and do it over and over, just like as if your pitch narrative is a product. You have to refine it and iterate on it 
over time. And you want to do that with investors or other stakeholders who you consider perhaps lower stakes. And maybe those are investors who aren't totally within your target thesis or aren't um, perhaps your ideal investors to have on your cap table. And that sounds a little harsh, but what the reality is that you want to get reps in lower stakes environments before you go to the top five investors on your target list and have those pitch meetings because you want to have plenty of practice under your belt. You want to have plenty of opportunities to iterate and refine your narrative before you get to the big leagues, so to speak. And I think that's one mistake that a lot of founders don't think about is if they're in the future of work, for example, which is where Vitalize invests, they want to come to us right away as their first pitch because they're not thinking about sort of that process of getting good at pitching. One thing that all VCs look for, especially at the earlier stages, is whether a founder can be a successful storyteller and fundraiser because ultimately there are going to be or very likely going to be successive rounds of capital that need to be raised. And so we have to have faith in that founder to be able to go out to market and successfully fundraise in order for the company to continue to grow and to ultimately achieve a return. And so we need to have faith that that founder is going to be successful if they're being a successful storyteller with us at the earlier stages. And so I would highly encourage founders to sort of create a list, whether it's investors, angels, et cetera, and sort of put that list into different tiers. Here are my you know, tier ones, the, it's sort of the practice bucket for lack of a better phrase. Here are the tier twos where, okay, there's more alignment between the ultimately their thesis and, and where we fall as a company. We are more interested in having them on the cap table and then really kind of your small bucket of maybe five to seven investors in your tier three who will, you consider the big leagues. These are the folks that I really want on the cap table. They would carry incredible credibility for me because they are very focused in the area in which I've been building my business, et cetera. And so having intentionality with how you pitch, viewing pitching as sort of a product unto itself and something that you need to iterate on, and then ultimately being very focused in how you build those skills over time to prep for the biggest meetings is a key part. And so that helps guide how you think about building relationships with investors and angels in advance before you ever come to market, because you ultimately want to build relationships with folks in each of those buckets that you outlined beforehand so that you have a steady group of people you can go practice with. You have relationships to some of your more focused investors when you ultimately want to pitch to them. And you have that full spectrum of folks who are supporting you along your journey. That's so interesting that you said that, just dividing investors on tranches. I mean, I know you with a financial background, you know exactly what I mean. Like you said, um, dividing them in tiers. And the funny thing is, is that when I went about pitching for one of my previous um, fintech ideas, this fintech startup I was working on, I had interest from the top tier investors and I was able to get those first meetings. But when it came to angel investors, I feel like I struggled more. So meaning that they didn't show as much interest as the top tier. And the way that you said, um, if you're able to convince 
those lower tier investors, like it would help prepare you to close those higher tier deals. Or even, even in fact, if you're able to close those lower tier investors, there's a higher chance of you successfully closing out your round with the top tier investors that you're looking to successfully raise from. So my question to you is, in addition, so I'm going to throw you a curveball. How would you go about finding angel investors? Because now these are individual like investors, right? And they're investing their own capital. They're not backed by LPs. So how do you effectively reach out to angel investors without a network? It's probably helpful to think about the perspective that an angel versus a fund manager brings. I think you raise a really interesting point, Jason, on how how their willingness or ability to invest is different. And, and breaking it down very simply, you know, fund managers have an agenda to deploy capital. That's the whole. That's their whole job. They they raise money from LPs. They have to put it out into the market. They have to source great companies, and ultimately they have to achieve a return. When you're an angel investor, it's usually your private wealth or you know, maybe you work for a family office and it's kind of the, the private wealth of a, a larger family. And so they can look at a lot of different investment opportunities and a lot of different ways to grow that capital over time. And so their agenda isn't necessarily to deploy a certain amount of VC dollars at any given time. Now, maybe they have a portfolio allocation strategy and there is a, a set allocation for, for venture, but typically it's it's a much different investing agenda. And so when angels think about investing, they're usually looking for one of a couple things. Either they're very industry focused. And so maybe they love future of work. Maybe they love manufacturing. Maybe they love fintech, whatever it is. And that often comes from either some career background they've had, maybe the background of their family office, et cetera. Maybe they're geographic focused. So there are a lot of angels who, for example, wish to support the startup scene here in Chicago. And so they're willing to deploy capital into a lot of different Chicago startups, regardless of industry. There are also folks who really just want to support great founders. Now, at the end of the day, everyone wants to invest in great founders, but sometimes angels are more willing to take a flyer on someone who doesn't see, perhaps seem to have great founder market fit, or perhaps is a little bit younger, or is perhaps sort of a, an out-of-the-box founder in a traditional venture sense. Now we can get in a whole separate discussion about uh, you know, whether venture should be looking for a certain type of founder to begin with. And I, I tend to think not that great entrepreneurial talent comes from anywhere. Point being is that a lot of times angels are sort of uh, the, the grease on the wheels to help facilitate first investment and first checks into founders who have maybe struggled getting capital from more traditional VC. And so keeping that perspective in mind, there are a lot of different ways to connect with angels that are kind of aligned with each of those. I think Chicago does a terrific job of having so many different startup events and pitch sessions and events focused on founders from all different types of backgrounds that naturally draw in people who are interested and committed to supporting those founders that there are plenty of opportunities to sort of organically meet these folks when you're at these events. And so to that extent, I highly encourage people just to get out there uh, into to network, to pitch, to to attend events. Now that sometimes that's easier said than done, especially if 
you're a little uncomfortable with networking, but I would say that that's the a skill of any great founder is to be able to put yourself out there and to speak about your company with with passion and excitement. So networking events are, are certainly one of them. I do think that a lot of times there are networks of angels. Obviously, we we won we run one through Vitalize Angels, where we have over 400 uh, both accredited and non-accredited angel investors who like to invest in all sorts of different things, who come from a variety of professional backgrounds, who live all over the country, etc. And so, a lot of times, all it takes is one advocate from someone within a network like that to then share it with other angels that they are you know, familiar with or friends with in that community. And there are all sorts of early angel networks. Obviously, I'm, I'm always going to support Vitalize Angels because that's sort of my baby. I was, a help, I was part of the team that helped pull that together. Uh, but there are other great ones like Chicago Early, for example, uh, run by Jeff and, and other folks who are doing some great work putting together these early angel networks that are focused on supporting great founders, both here in Chicago, by industry, et cetera. So I would highly encourage founders to take a look on LinkedIn and just search for some of the networks. And you'll find a lot of individual folks who are passionate and are, you know, highlight the fact that they're in these networks. And then you start narrowing it down by, okay, here's the industries they've worked in. Here's their professional background. Here's where they're located geographically. And you can start building a list that way of folks who may be aligned with your particular narrative. Let's shift our focus on constructing a pitch deck. Uh, for early stage ventures, what slides should they have under deck? And can you like break it down for us? For sure. All right. So again, this is one area where I'm just offering one perspective. Folks have a lot of different ideas on how this works. There's some terrific right. blog posts out there, but this is sort of the formula that I that worked for me when I was a founder pitching and that I've seen work probably most consistently. And I'm sort of a fan of keeping it simple and not overcomplicating it and really breaking it down into simple steps. So really when you're building a pitch deck, there's just a few questions that you overall have to answer. One is, why is this a problem that matters? Two, why is your solution the right solution to solve that problem? And then three, why are you the right team or why are these the right circumstances, aka business model, market timing, all those sorts of things that make this the right opportunity to solve this problem? Really, that's fundamentally the three questions that you're trying to answer. And so I always kind of think about a pitch deck as telling an, a comprehensive aligned narrative that helps answer those three things. So this is sort of my list of how I break it down. People I'm sure will be free to uh, to disagree. And I've always loved hearing different perspectives on it. So keep in mind that the order can change a little bit, but at least for the first three or four slides, this is how I usually do it is you've got to start with a problem and you really have to make it seem very painful. It's like, why is this a problem that matters? Why is this something that's big? Why is this something that we absolutely have to solve right now? And really for early stage companies, i I highly recommend that you just focus on one core customer. When I was building my startup, uh, we could we really could tailor the solution to a lot of different SMB clients, but we ultimately focused on mom and pop retailers, these companies who were trying to transition from primarily brick and mortar operations to an e-commerce presence because that provided so much clarity in both the product experience 
and also our, our marketing and messaging that it made total sense from a beachhead market perspective. So I would highly recommend that when you are setting up your problem with this initial slide, you just focus on one core customer because it's also way easier to tell your story of why it matters that way. So then second slide, I would go right to solution and being very specific with what you do. One issue that I see a lot of times is companies sort of leave a, a general description of their solution or of their product or service, and it doesn't really inform you as the viewer of the pitch deck of what that solution truly does. Like if you were, if I were to click into your solution and my perspective is primarily from B2B software, but if I were to open up your app, your browser, whatever it is, I need to understand what it is I'm looking at and, and what it is this thing actually does. So just getting specific, um, that doesn't mean go into a bunch of features right off the bat, but it does mean that in a quick sentence or two, I'm able to understand what this software does. From there, I would go into market size because then it's establishing some more context for one, how big the problem is, but two, what the value of the solution is. And I always recommend doing a, a bottoms-up approach. I know it's not easy, but again, tops down, you see someone sort of taking a, a very large data point. Maybe it's there are uh, you know 30 million small businesses in the U.S. and um, you know each one of those is approximately you know 10 employees, and you know you start kind of doing a, a tops-down approach. That's fine. If anything, do a tops down and bottom up approach. Uh, bottom up, always use your own pricing. So if we're in for that given example, if we were to say, okay, there are 170,000 mom and pop retailers within a geographic area, you know, the Midwest that we're focused on, our pricing is $10 a month. Uh, that translates to X dollars in annual revenue per year. And kind of the rule of thumb is that you want to have a uh, addressable market size of at least a billion. Now, sometimes you see pitch decks that say our market is $4 trillion. And so in very few circumstances, is that actually true? Uh, maybe in something like healthcare or, or something massive, but it's a totally different ballgame unto itself. So bottoms up approach always, always just shows a little bit more intentionality. It shows that you understand the market a little bit more, shows you're more focused. And ultimately it helps us understand how you're thinking about how your pricing translates into an ultimate opportunity and maybe whether you're under or overpriced. So that's always helpful to see as well. Now, for early stage companies, at the end of the day, it's all about the team as well because companies are made of people. The companies are only going to succeed if the people succeed. And so that's why for the next slide, I would typically... Uh, like to see founders go into team. And you'll sometimes see folks put a huge slide of, you know, here's the two or three co-founders. Here are uh, six advisors. Here's a couple contract people we have. And I would say that it's it's much more important to focus on expressing the founder market fit of the main people working on the business. So, uh, you'll, you'll hear other folks say this. I'm not a huge fan of having advisors on the slide. Um, I did it when I was a founder. So perhaps I'm being a little hypocritical, 
But at the same time, it doesn't always add a lot of value because those folks aren't always very involved in the business. And so it becomes a little bit more puffery than, than true value. And so the, the, at one point it was popular, but now I would recommend sort of having advisors off the slide. And I would really focus more on showing sort of the, the bios and backgrounds of the core team members, the co-founders, uh, especially if it was CTO, that help explain why this team is fully equipped in the right team to not only tackle this problem, but execute the solution that they're pitching. So I would really focus on, on team and, and driving that home. From there, transition into business model. What is your core revenue stream? And really do not have more than two max. I, sometimes you see startups have three, four revenue streams on a slide. And it all comes from a good place. I appreciate the perspective that founders bring if they're thinking long-term, but telling me something that could happen five years down the road when you eventually move into selling the data or whatever it is, uh, which is always a common one, um, that, that's just not totally helpful right now because we have to evaluate what the opportunity to invest in this company is right now at the current moment, given all sort of the, the near-term trends and, and then you can look at the ultimate long-term opportunity. If possible, it is helpful to, to have pricing on there, primarily for the reasons I mentioned previously of that we get to see your intentionality, your focus, your understanding of the market, et cetera. Um, from there, I think it's helpful to go into uh, an analysis of, of your go-to-market strategies, your business development strategies, primarily because the calculus I'm doing in my head is, okay, if this is how it's priced, this is the business model, how do you then get people to pay for the solution? How do you get people to sign up and do the economics of the go-to-market strategies align and are they sustainable with how you're pricing your solution? And so if there's not, even in B2B software, you still have to have positive unit economics. Um, and so that's just something that, you know, I think it's helpful to show back to back because it's, here's how we're making money. Here's how we're spending money to acquire customers and how we're making money needs to be greater than how we're, how much we're spending. So just something to keep in mind to show kind of both sides of that equation from there, depending on how early the company is, depending on how much traction they'd have, I would go into a traction slide. People always want to see the numbers, see how you're doing. And so, even if traction is early, you can still speak to things like material downloads, registrations, customer waitlist numbers, et cetera. Obviously, revenues always great. That's primarily the one that we're all looking for, to be totally honest with you. But understanding that if you're super early, you may not have some of those things. But what I always want to see from a traction slide is just the fact that the founder or co-founder early stage team has sort of scrapped and clawed and found a way to either get some sort of monetization or get some sort of proof that the market wants this thing that they're building. And it's just a really strong sign that there is demand for a solution to the problem as opposed to demand for this solution specifically. And I think that's a key distinction to make because you can do a lot of things like subsidizing customers with free giveaways or underpricing or whatever it is. 
to get people to sign up for your solution that you know ultimately are not willing to pay the full price of what your full solution will actually look like. And so that's not really true product market fit if people aren't willing to pay or aren't willing to pay to the degree that the solution needs to have sustainable unit economics. So just something to keep in mind because I think that there is often some confusion or some cloudiness around what true product market fit is. And so if you can put forth metrics of traction that allow you to ultimately ascertain whether people are willing to you know, pay your solution at a sustainable price, that's really the key delineation that you're looking for. So just something for founders to keep in mind rather than sort of just showing juiced traction metrics. Couple more slides here because I am a fan of keeping it simple, keeping it relatively efficient. I do think it makes sense to go into a competition slide because we want to understand that you know the market, you know what you're going up against, but you also know how your solution is differentiated and how other people are trying to solve the problem. And quite frankly, why their attempts to solve the problem, why their models, their solutions aren't optimal or how they solve it in a different way where you can still carve out a nice competitive niche for yourself. Finally, I would just go into your ask slide. And you know, if you're sending this around to investors, that usually looks like and ask for capital. Sometimes you're asking for help with uh, hiring a CTO, hiring other team members, intros to potential customers, et cetera. But usually this is for capital and it's all kind of the key details of your fundraise, how much you're looking to raise, the areas of your business you're looking to spend the money in, you know, perhaps a little description of why. Why is it important to spend more on marketing as opposed to product, as opposed to building the team, whatever that looks like. And the type of round and some of the features of the rounds, whether it's a safe convertible note price round, um, ultimately how much is committed. If there are any other investors that have invested and are willing to share their name on there, really just some details of the round and, and ultimately what it looks like at this point. And keeping in mind that you're always looking to share the deck before you have that call, before you have that meeting with the VC it just helps set the stage for that conversation so that everyone knows where you as a company stand in your fundraise before you get into that conversation. So I know I've been talking for a while. Hopefully this is some helpful context. Again, just one perspective on how to put together pitch deck, but I think it's fairly efficient and really helps tell your story in an aligned and consistent way. Yeah. I mean, it's like you said, there's so many ways of going about it, but hearing your perspective, especially for someone that can aggregate the data as an investor. You're seeing pitch pitch decks almost every day. So that was really insightful. And uh, I like the fact where you talked about the advisors and how um, some people can use that to puff up their value, but there is no real intrinsic value to that. And the funny thing is, is that today, actually, an episode is being dropped about how, uh, and we spoke to Brad Baum, he's an angel investor, and it was all about building advisory boards and finding the right advisors. But uh, he did state the fact that a lot, of, a lot of advisors or a lot of founders would use advisors to kind of buff up the value of her startup or um, some might be interested in just getting advisor, uh, just getting equity, 
right? Um, so like figuring out how to balance that and how to find people that are aligned with your goals and balancing where you want to take your company and how advisors are looking forward to seeing where your company goes. So that was a really, really interesting take. And my next question to you is, and my last question to you would be, what are potential red flags you see in pitch decks? Yeah, I find a couple of them just with the advisor point and sort of with puffed up metrics that don't totally demonstrate a path towards true product market fit. I think other things in general, and it sounds sort of silly, Jason, honestly, but if you can look at the deck and see a certain level of care that is put put into it, a certain degree of organization, of aesthetic design, et cetera, I do think it communicates a certain level of intentionality, a certain level of focus, a certain level of perhaps professionalism. Now I'm biased because I came from the world of consulting. And so it was drilled into us day in and day out to have a beautiful PowerPoint with everything aligned, everything formatted perfectly. So I acknowledge that I'm probably a little bit of a presentation snob. It's a very fair and and early uh, disclaimer. That being said, you do want to see that people care about how their company is presented because the, you cannot replicate a first impression. And so just as I want to give you, uh, you know, a strong handshake when I first meet you for the first time, or I want to look you in the eye or give you a great business card, whatever it is, you only have so many opportunities to make a great first impression in your pitch deck as these things are getting circulated around and, and shared with, uh, you know, co-investors who are aligned with that particular type of company, that's your opportunity because you don't always get a chance to meet the investor beforehand in person before they have first exposure to your startup. And so these little things do matter. And, you know, that being said, I've seen plenty of beautiful, beautifully designed pitch decks that are not well constructed in terms of narrative or fit or giving useful information. So I'm not saying design is everything. You still have to have a core story it still has to be impactful in telling your startup's narrative. But you do want to see a certain level of care put into this thing, Um, especially when you're perhaps dealing with complex products or software where user experience, user design is going to be really important. This is a way for someone sitting across the table to understand whether your team has an eye for those things. So just something to keep in mind that Design does matter and it does, you don't have to go spend a bunch of money with a professional designer to pull this thing together. There are so many great templates out there, so many great design tools that cost little to nothing to be able to use that. I'm not advocating for that, but I am saying be intentional, be focused, care about what the pitch deck looks like in addition to and on top of having a really great narrative. Well, everyone, that's John Hayes from Vitalized Ventures. John, thank you for being on the podcast. Jason, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to see all of your great progress to continue following the show. Hopefully I'll be able to make it back on in the future if you're willing to put up with my rambling, but uh, I'm excited to be a part of it today. And quite frankly, just really excited for the future of the Chicago startup ecosystem. There are so many great folks that are building great companies here and there's some great investors as well. So I could not be more thrilled to be a part of this whole thing.